The Double X Gab Fest is brought to you by Me Undies. Me Undies makes the world's most comfortable underwear in a variety of styles and patterns. Head to MeUndies.com slash Double X to get free shipping and 20% off your first order. And by BowlandBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlandBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. And use the promo code double X. And by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers right to your door everything you need to create a home-cooked meal. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy to follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious dinner in 40 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com slash double X to get your first two meals free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, June 16th, the full Angela Merkel edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. June and Noreen are both out this week. So I'm here in D.C. with Christina Cotarucci, who's a writer for Slate. Hi, Christina. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And also Jessica Winter, who is a features editor at Slate and an author of Break in Case of Emergency, a wonderful novel that is out in early July. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Jessica has been on the show before. I have. Yeah, I somehow I associate you with the story you told about prom. I sometimes dream about that story. Oh, that got edited out. <laughs> oh, it did. But I'm happy to Damn tell it. it again. Maybe it'll make it into the next broadcast. <laughs> oh, my God. The elusive prom story. Okay, listeners, I'm sorry. I can't tell you about it. Sorry. It's just like lost to the dustbin of history, but it was a wonderful story. <laughs> Maybe we'll find a way to pivot and have Jessica tell it again. Okay. Transition from prom to the Stanford rape case is an awkward one, but we are going to do it. We're going to, I'm going to talk about our three topics. The first is the Stanford rape case. We will talk about its aftermath, what we've learned, the good and the bad from that case. Second is the future of feminism. Should we be talking less about work and more about caregiverism, which is a very awkward term. I think we can all agree. But you get the point. And third is the gender card in the election. Both Hillary and Donald Trump are making a play for gender correctness this week. We will discuss. And our Slate Plus this week, for Slate Plus listeners, who also get the show ad-free, is Instagram sexist. Okay, let's start with the Stanford rape case. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the basic facts of the case. A freshman, he was a freshman when he committed the crime, a freshman at Stanford, and a swimmer, which was much mentioned in a lot of articles about him, named Brock Turner, was convicted of rape in a California courtroom, but then given what many people consider an unusually light sentence, which was six months, but then reduced to three months. Is that how the sentence works exactly? It could go down to three months with good behavior, which we can probably assume he'll behave reasonably well in county jail. Right. Okay. So like a minimum of three months, a maximum of six months. Um, there's so much in this case. Um, there were two bystanders. There was an unbelievable uh, witness statement, which is what I think uh, has, has given this case the resonance that it has. Um, and in the aftermath, there's been a lot of protest about the sentence. Um, so the first thing I want to discuss is Let's pinpoint for our listeners, why do you guys think this is the case that stuck around? This is the one that echoed and resonated more than so many of these cases. 
I think in a lot of cases, uh, survivors of sexual violence don't get to speak out for themselves, whether because they don't want to, they don't want to be the focus, they don't want to subject themselves to backlash, or they just don't have an outlet for it. So this victim not only read her statement in court, but published it on BuzzFeed. She's clearly a very internet savvy person. And the world got to read her story in her own words. She was a beautiful writer. She wrote a really powerful piece. I think for many people, that was probably the first experience of reading a victim telling their story in such detail in their own words. Yeah, she's a really wonderful writer, and it's such a powerful piece of writing. It manages to be both eloquent and raw. It's it's really tightly argued and tightly organized, but there's also this kind of riveting spontaneity to it, like it's just flowing out of her. Um, and she's funny. You wouldn't think a statement like this could be funny, but she has this dark wit and and really an amazing sense of, of imagery. At one point, she compares herself to a car in a ditch after a car crash, which is just such a startling way to hear a young woman describe her own body. At another point, she imagines herself as a wounded antelope peeled off from the herd, which is a perfect way of describing how a sexual predator preys uh, upon his victims. I also think she lays out so well in her statement why this should have been an open and shut case. There were, as you mentioned, Hannah, there were two witnesses. Um, There was uh, abundant physical evidence. She had lacerations and abrasions. There was debris inside her body. Um, And she believed that he would admit what he did and take a plea bargain. And because he is a privileged young man with a lot of people around him who enable him, he, you know, hired an expensive attorney and fought this really hard and attributed it not to... I mean, he attributed it to sexual promiscuity brought on by drinking, which is a pretty amazing category error to make about sexual assault. She laid all of that out um, almost like a prosecutor would lay out an opening statement or a closing statement. And um, I think that's why people really responded to it. I mean, as an editor of long-form writing in Slate, you just admire it. No, seriously, like as a piece of writing, it's an unbelievable piece of writing. Like it managed to be so many things at once, like clearly logically argued, beautifully described, also memoir. Like it really, it's just like every kind of writing in one. And it's, it's really amazing. And I think probably gives people... I mean, for me, it was a lot of things. For one thing, it's like you're over the moment. It felt like the most over the moment of rape victim shame. You know, like if you think of the Joan Didion essay about the Central Park jogger, which characterized a certain era of rape in which the rape victim was completely silent. And as Joan Didion argued, kind of problematically silent, like we didn't hear from this person. This person was a blank and you could project all sorts of things on this person. I feel like this is the other bookend, like not a lot of shame. Like she she described her experience of personal shame, but, but the piece of writing exhibited no shame. You know, here is what this experience is like, like read it, empathize, understand what the situation and condition is like. And something like that can be so powerful, I think, because it's like the rape victims are not, you know, kind of Jane Doe's no more. Another thing that I've been thinking about is for men who sometimes are, but usually aren't the targets of sexual violence, this could be a really important piece for 
showing them exactly how serious the impacts are. I think it made me think of a piece that I wrote when I was at the Washington City paper about being groped on the street and filing a police report about it. And I wrote about the questions that the police officer was asking me afterwards. You know, how many fingers did the person use? Which side of your buttocks did he put his hand on? Was it a caress? Was it a grab? And someone commented to me after that that he would have never thought that groping someone on the street was a sexual assault until he heard the ex- it being described in great detail. I think that somebody from the outside could have looked at the legalistically described details of this case and not fully internalize the deep impact it could have on somebody, that it doesn't matter if it was what is categorized as rape, you know, quote unquote intercourse. It didn't matter that she was half clothed and that he was almost fully clothed. What matters is that he violated her. Yeah. And there was like a no big dealness. Nobody actually said this on the Turner side, but 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 the kind of thing that emanated from Brock Turner's statement and his father's unfortunate statement, which just backfired and made things worse for his son, was this sense like this happens, you know, like Brock Turner's statement was weird, kind of anesthetic description of rape culture. It was like, well, this is what my brothers do. Like, I love these guys. You know, I, I couldn't tell if in his statement he was betraying his his swimming br- brothers or like or like embracing them. It was like, well, I'm it, it was like I'm a rube. And this was contested in the court, but this was just the image he put forward in his statement. I'm a rube. I come from Ohio. I'm not a really a big drinker. I get to Stanford. And this is what the boys do. You know, like the boys drink. They take a girl home. I was just I was just doing what the boys do. And and like so. So is that is that like is that an excuse or is he condemning rape culture? It was very confusing, his statement. Well, he also wants to present as if he was blackout drunk and just became a different person during that period of time. But when the hero Swedes on the bikes happened past this sexual assault, he ran. He knew he was doing something wrong. So the idea that, you know, his frat brothers or his swim team buddies or whoever made him drink to excess and this horrible thing happened that he had no control over, he had control over himself enough to run away. So that was just a completely disingenuous line. And his father's statement about how he doesn't enjoy steaks anymore. I don't even know where to begin with that. Yeah, I don't know what the dad was thinking. Like, I totally get that his dad and his mom wrote statements. Like, his mom's statement is just the statement of a mom. It was basically like, oh, my God, my son, you know? So it's not that I I don't begrudge parents writing in favor of their sons, but there was just such a kind of cloistered, clueless aspect to it all. Like, like it was basically like there is no way that, like, rape and this child belong in the same box. Like, it's just not true and not possible. And, you know, he had dozens of people defending him, including his girlfriend, um, his ex-girlfriend, whose statement came out, and friends, which which had a tremendous influence on the judge, apparently. It just, like, collectively painted this picture of, like, this is just a dude, you know? He's not a rapist. He's just a guy. I think that's another reason why it has stuck around and that it affected people so deeply because it was a really concise a black and white depiction of what rape culture is for somebody who might not have fully understood that concept, that it was so clear that this was a sexual assault. It was so clear that he was at fault, that he was in the wrong. And to see the incongruity of somebody trying to defend him and chalk it up to promiscuity, I think was jarring for a lot of people, certainly for me. And I write about rape all the time. 
What do you guys think would have been the right sentence for him? Because that's something that I've been trying to figure out. That's a really hard one. I mean, I take cues from Emily Bazelon, who um, who on the political gab fest, they talked about this case. She had an interesting take, which is that, in fact, there's one element of this case which represents progress, um, which is that in blackout cases, it's actually extremely difficult to get a conviction. Um, so I have that in my head. Another thing I have in my head is a letter from one of the jurors, uh, which came out this week. I think it was posted on Palo Alto Online, which said basically like the evidence was overwhelming, incontrovertible. This was a jury largely full of men and how dare you give such a little sentence? You know, I think it had to do also with the sort of logic of the judge was so the logic of like the promising career and he suffered enough. But I don't I I, I don't know, like you don't actually want to be in the position of the criminal justice system giving harsher penalties, although three months seems ridiculously small. And then, Christina, you made a very good point about the sex registry that like that's not quite the right way to deal with this. Like there's something wrong with that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think probably the harshest part of his sentence will be the fact that he has to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life, which, you know, study after study has shown does not make anyone safer. Obviously, he wasn't on a sex registry and he still committed a crime. The restrictions that a sex offender registry places on somebody will not prevent him from committing a similar crime. But you're right. It's difficult because I think that the bigger problem in most cases is too harsh sentencing and that prison usually doesn't do us much good. But the fact that his sentence was so much lighter than so many other people who have been convicted for far lesser crimes is pretty outrageous. I mean, Jessica, what do you think the sentencing is for, right? Like, if the sentencing is for deterrence, this is way too small a sentence. And the thing that's going to deter anybody in the future is her impact statement, because it was so powerful and kind of humanizes the other end. And just the kind of that he is the Internet villain for months more, right? Like, that is a bigger deterrent factor. I think people will learn from that. Um, so it's too short to be a deterrent. What about rehabilitation? How do you change this guy? How do you how do you get him to accept culpability for what he did, to understand how he was responsible for this crime? Would a longer sentence have helped with that? I mean, I just feel like the American justice system really isn't equipped for rehabilitation and doesn't focus on rehabilitation. And I don't know how to quantify the punitive part of it. I mean, six months is too short, but do you attach one year for each of the felony counts? Do you attach two years? Um, at one point, the victim said to the probation officer that she didn't want Turner to rot away in prison. I think those were her words. And according to her statement, like so much else she said, these words were twisted and used against her as if she didn't want him to get jail or prison time at all. But I have no idea what the appropriate distance between six months and not rotting away is. I don't, I don't know what that number is. Um, and I don't know how rehabilitation comes into it at all. I, I agree with, with Christina that, you know, I, I don't think the answer is putting, uh, putting him on the sex offender registry for the rest of his life, uh, which is maybe a different conversation. But that's not how rehabilitation happens either. Yeah. And it's not because it's too harsh or not harsh enough. It's because it doesn't accomplish the thing that we want to accomplish. And the thing she said she wanted to accomplish, which is that he had to acknowledge that this was a rape, that this wasn't like, you know, haha drunkenness. This wasn't party behavior. This was an actual rape. So if we take that as our goal, you think like what accomplishes that goal? I mean, there are really interesting programs that even work with felons in which the way they accomplish this is by putting 
the victim, if he or she is willing, and the perpetrator in the same room um, in lieu of a longer sentence. You know, like you wouldn't want to impose that on her, but you just wonder, like, maybe you could put him in a room with her statement for six months and see if that does anything to him, like if that breaks him in any way. Because the interesting thing about what he wrote and what everyone around him wrote is that he was very comfortable portraying himself as a victim. You know, that seemed to be his immediate default. Like, I'm a victim of these guys who taught me this way. I'm a victim of the culture. I'm a victim of this judge. It's like he, he that that was a fine place for him to put himself. And that's not going to change. I mean, the saddest part of this, uh, of the aftermath, is the fact that, you know, judging by his parents' letters, his statement, uh, the message he's getting from the judge and everyone around him, none of that is going to make him change his mind about it. In my opinion, I think somebody who's surrounded by a culture that enables a crime such as that, he'll see himself as a martyr, a victim of, you know, overzealous Internet feminists, I believe. Do we have any sense that Brock Turner has responded in any way to her statement? I mean, he was present when she delivered it, but do do we know if he heard her and was receptive to her message? Is there is, is there any news Yeah, we don't know. I mean, he might yeah. have been, but we have no idea. That would be the thing to wait for. I bet that would be satisfying to her, too. Like, mm-hmm. I hear what you said. I understand. You know, I understand that, you know, I think the most, one of the most memorable parts of her statement was her defending her right to go to part to party basically to party and drink um and just kind of like just shedding light on that fine line like the gradations the kind of night that you want to have sometimes um and how that doesn't justify what he did so you wonder if he you know presumably he's a smart guy if he goes to stanford like he if if that's what he does in his three months is like read that statement and then three months down the road respond to it because her decision to read that statement to him is as close as this case has come to, you know, notions that we have of restorative justice or models of reconciliatory reconciliation and justice. And I feel like we're missing a chapter of the story because we don't know what he thought of it. Um, Yeah, and he's going to appeal the decisions. He's going to appeal the case. So I think we probably won't know. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, he's got to think carefully about what he says and how he portrays himself. I, I really hesitate to say this because I don't want to come across as, as having sympathy for Brock Turner. I, I don't. I think he's he's vile and what he did was vile. But I think we have to keep in mind that he was 19 when this happened and brain development continues well into your 20s. Like his frontal lobes literally weren't fully connected when this happened. <laughs> Teenagers don't have enough. It's called myelin coding to enable 100% effective neural communications. And that's why high school students and college students do so much dumb shit. And that's why they're impulsive and stupid and do terrible things sometimes. And so given that, I, you know, the 19-year-old Brock Turner and the 29-year-old Brock Turner may be very different people. And I, I think we all owe it to everyone to give some chance for someone to rehabilitate himself. I really doubt that he will because the people surrounding him and enabling him now seem as awful as he is. But it is neurologically possible. And that's why I'm uncomfortable with his lifetime presence on the sex offender registry. And that's why I'm a little uncomfortable with a lifetime sports ban, but I kind of don't care about the latter. And I think I might have just 
like burned my feminist card or something <laughs> saying that. Yeah. All right. So, Jessica, here's where I'm with you, because I have two sons and I just think for me, there's so little written and so little guidance about in the kind of category of like, so how do you raise your boys today kind of thing? Like, yes, we're all more feminized and there's just a greater continuum for boy behavior. But there's all the there's also this campus bro culture, which Michael Kimmel and others have written about. That's like enduring. There's you know, there's the way that porn is these days. And I feel like I don't have a great idea of what to do with the boys or how to talk to them. Like there's so much about how to talk to the girls and how to protect the girls and what to tell them. But I don't actually have a good sense of, of, of how to talk to boys who are walking into this world, you know? Um, and I don't just mean campus culture who are just like the drinking, the way the sex, like all these things that seem like confusing and kind of too hard for them to handle at that age. Like, I wish I had some better guidance. And if any of our listeners do, you know, bring it. Yeah. And I think I think that that confusion is in itself like a byproduct of rape culture. Rape, rape culture puts all the responsibility on the girls, right? So, you know, we know how to talk to the girls. We know how to tell them, you know, things that they can do to protect themselves. But it, it doesn't occur to us to figure out the best way to talk to the boys because boys will be boys. So, yeah, I think that's an, a really important point. I mean, John Krakauer, who wrote Missoula about campus rape culture, has talked about how there needs to be some kind of comprehensive education for boys starting really, really young about consent. But I, I don't know where or how that's happening. But I think a conversation is starting around it. Yeah, like I was thinking I'm going <laughs> to, before my boys go to college, I'm going to give them that victim impact statement. You just like yeah. give them an education on this case. Because Brock Turner is just kind of, is, he's kind of a flat, he's turned into a flat villain. That's partly his parents' fault, you know, and all the people around him like did him no justice. He's not really a human to me in any way. Um, so I can't sort of see the fullness of Brock Turner, but I feel like I could talk about this entire case and what went wrong and how he was raised and sort of just everyone who defended him and what was wrong with that or maybe we'll get to know the swedes on bikes maybe they can be like they can be like <laughs> they can be our models the for hero swedes on bikes should definitely teach that seminar alongside john krakauer they should go exactly. on a nationwide tour exactly <laughs> all right well uh we will keep watching this case and see how it develops so let's move on to our second topic which is now i will say the word caregiverism caregiverism uh, but before we do that let's hear from our sponsor the XX Gab Fest is brought to you this week by Me Undies. Whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, you spend almost 24 hours a day in your underwear. But instead of making a statement, your underwear is probably boring. And no one likes to see boring underwear. Me Undies is here to change that. Every pair of Me Undies is made from sustainably sourced modal, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. MeUndies has dozens of styles and limited edition prints to help you make a statement with your underwear, whether anyone can see them or not. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free, no questions asked. And you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Whether you get the subscription or a single pair, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash double X. That's MeUndies.com slash double X for 20% off your first order of MeUndies. Okay, so now our second topic, the future of feminism. That's not too big a topic. We're not actually going to talk about the future of feminism. 
<laughs> we're going to talk about something smaller and more digestible, which is there seems to be a rebellion brewing against lean-in feminism, the idea that the workplace is where women are going to solve all of their problems, this awkward phase, which I really hate this phrase. Maybe you guys can help me figure out a better one or figure out why I hate this phrase, caregiverism. Anyway, this weekend, the fabulous Judith Shulovitz wrote about this in the New York Times. Anne-Marie Slaughter has written about it. Ali Wong made her whole comedy routine about it. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So why don't we start by explaining, I'll turn this over to you, Jessica, what is caregiverism? What does that phrase imply or mean? So Judith Shilovitz has said in the past, notably in a conversation with Rebecca Traster from a couple of years ago, that she is almost getting a little weary of feminism and wants to switch the um, conversation to caregiverism, um, which is quite a mouthful, and we should definitely brainstorm a better way of saying it. But the general idea, and you, you guys can definitely improve on this, is that we have to um, stop denigrating the work of care. I, I think what Shulevitz wrote is we have to make it unacceptable to denigrate the work of care um, and that we should ascribe either symbolic or actual economic value to work in the home and specifically uh, child rearing. And so there are specific policy aspects of this and there are also kind of hazier wouldn't the world be perfect if we had this? And um, those include better and longer paid leave, which is something that has become a hallmark of Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, subsidized child care, which we came uh, very close to having in the early 70s uh, before President Nixon uh, vetoed a bill that would have provided for it. Child care is a qualification for receiving cash assistance. Uh, you have to uh, fulfill work requirements to receive welfare in the U.S. And obviously the obligations vary from state to state. But the idea would be if you work very hard raising your children, that that would qualify you for cash assistance. Um, another, Although technically this is gender neutral, right? That's yes, the other thing. I mean, it's yes. not really gender neutral, but it's supposed to be gender neutral. Like both exactly. Anne-Marie Slaughter and Judith Shulovitz are always stressing this could be a guy taking care of his aging mother. Like this is not a woman's thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, it's gendered in that women do most of the caregiving. But yes, in, in theory, it's gender neutral. Some people have proposed a kind of earned income tax credit, but for housework and child care. And then Shulovitz talks kind of hazily about, you know, some kind of social agreement that if you drop out of the workforce for a few years to focus on small children or focus on taking care of an aging parent, um, you don't pay a penalty for that in the workplace. Now, I don't know how you legislate that last one. And most of the items on this list are probably impossible with our current um, political climate. But that's the basic lay of the land. Right. Um, and I also think, I mean, the spirit of it to me is also this idea that the kind of lean in C-suite feminism does not actually does not actually reflect the inner desires or the reality of many women's lives and how they want to live them. That's part of what appeals to me, this idea that it's not so much about like the the specifics of paying people or not paying people, but but that this way of pinning feminism entirely to workplace ambition is sort of narrow and male in some way that it doesn't it's not it feels wrong. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, feminism has focused on work because women were blocked from participating in so much of the workforce and attaining economic power and independence for so long. And so it you know, it makes sense fighting for access to the workplace 
in doing that, in, in, in making that fight for access to the workplace, I think women quite rationally decided to adapt themselves to a format designed for men who had stay-at-home wives and mothers at home waiting for them at night. Uh, w- waiting for them at night with dinner ready, you know? So I think phase one was breaking down the door to the workplace, um, and that's still an ongoing fight. And phase two is breaking down the workplace itself to make it more harmo- harmonious with what 21st century family life actually looks like, or, you know, turning the home into a workplace, starting to see the home as a workplace. This was the big flaw of Lean In for me, which was that Sheryl Sandberg's answer to so many workplace conundrums was just work harder. Uh, but in working harder, also always remember to present yourself in such a way that you're, palati- you know, you're, you're like palatable to all possible people on earth at any given moment. Um, <laughs> and that's an extremely privileged uh, argument because working harder and longer assumes that if you have children, you know, you have a great deal of support at home from either a partner or for, from your, you know, vast paid staff. She's given up on that a little bit. No, I mean, she since has. Her I husband mean, died. Yeah, yeah. Like, since her husband died, she has she she has acknowledged the the flaws in that argument, which is which is uh, commendable for sure. I have like here's where I part the idea of turning home into work, like defining it as work, paying it as work. That feels so very American and demented to me. Like, I'm not sure that that's the way I would take this. I feel like there's something abnormal in American life about the inability to recognize that human beings have elements of their of themselves, which is not just the work person. That's just weird and distinctly American. Like, of course, we're not just work people. Of course, we freaking children are born and someone needs to take it. It's like (laughs) everybody else knows that, right? Like the idea of turning it into a hallowed thing always, always makes me a little queasy. Like, of course, like I love Judith when she talks about time, like the unfolding of time and how like there's just a sort of natural cycle. Like it's always been a little weird to me that we have to fight in the time when we have small children or, you know, dying parents. Like I I feel like most cultures would understand that a human being has to be present in a different way during that moment. And we don't understand it. Um, So it makes me a little sad that the only way we can normalize is by defining those things as work. You know, I think that's what makes me a little bit uneasy about the idea of caregiverism. <laughs> I can't even say it. Right. It like denaturalizes what's so fucking natural. Um, I, I mean, the goals of this movement, if you want to call it that, are great. I think that anything that gives people, men, women, or other, more tools to achieve their goals and live their fullest lives, get the help that they need raise children if they want to, not if they don't want to, uh, is great. I think that that's a major goal of feminism. I don't like, it still seems very grounded in problematic ideas of capitalism and you must work to earn money and uh, that we shouldn't just be providing for people's basic needs to begin with. I kind of chafe at the idea that a certain number of hours of caring for an aging parent would earn you a certain amount of money. And when <laughs> you'd be like poisoning your mom, <laughs> like, get sick, mom. <laughs> also, because in my experience, sometimes when you get paid for something, uh, when I get paid for something, 
I find less pleasure in it because it becomes work. I see right. it as work. I'm not a parent. I don't know how much taking care of a child is or is not pleasurable. From what I understand, it's both at once. But yeah, the idea of it being work, something that you get paid for like you would a job, seems very unnatural to me. Yeah, I don't even know what I'm asking for because like in Denmark, they do this, right? They do have a hallowed space. for. I mean, this, let's let's use Sweden since we're all about the the hero Swedes um, on the show. <laughs> and so, so you know, in, in the Scandinavian countries where, where they do this all very heroically and they, in Sweden, they make the men take paternity leave and it's all like progressive and fabulous. Actually, women do pay a price. Like their economies are much more gender than ours. Women are shuttled into jobs that are more gender specific. People understand that now, that that isn't the, you know, the idyllic model that it always seems to us in America. So I'm just not sure, like, I want that exactly. Like, I'm not sure I wanted a big, I don't know what I'm asking for. I just want people to be normal. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder, I mean, Anne-Marie Slaughter has written and spoken a lot about uh, getting men more involved in caregiverism. And I wonder if that would also be a way to get men involved, men who, as you said, Jessica, fetishize work outside the home, prioritize money making, uh, and maybe view, quote unquote, women's work or work inside the home as less than if it was positioned as work worth money, I think men would be more involved. That's a really good idea. You know, so there's there's programs to encourage people to get married and welfare reform. Are there programs to encourage or even pay fathers to be fathers? Oh, no. No. Because that's an interesting idea. Like if we re... If we, we solved it. That's it. We Just solved now. it. Yeah. If we rebranded, you know, child caregiverism as, as paid work and then, and then men would do more of it. Yeah, to boom. I just fixed it. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. <laughs> the future of feminism. Check. <laughs> okay, well, since we just solved all the problems, um, let's move on to our next topic, which is the gender card in the election. But before we do that, let's hear from our next sponsor. The X Gabfest is also brought to you today by Bowl and Branch. Why don't you do something easy to get the good night's sleep you've been missing? Like get a fresh set of sheets from Bowl and Branch. Sheets have been on my mind lately because we have this fitted sheet on our mattress that always pops off the corners when we're asleep. So we go to sleep on this beautiful bed and we wake up and somehow the fitted sheet has like removed itself from the corners of the bed and we're like sleeping on a bare mattress and it all feels kind of sorted. So I am definitely in the market for some new linens. So I'm happy to tell our listeners that you can do something easy to get the good night's sleep you've been missing, like get a fresh set of sheets from Bowl and Branch. You can only get their sheets in one place. That's bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. Go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com, and use the promo code double X, and they'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. If you don't absolutely love them, you can send them back. You literally have nothing to lose. And it gets even better. When you go to bowlandbranch.com today and enter promo code double X, you get 20% off your entire order, sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. And all of their products come beautifully packaged in their signature boxes. Don't wait. Go to bowlandbranch.com today and use promo code double X for 20% off your entire order. 
Okay, so the gender card. We are going to dissect two interesting moments in the election. The first, Hillary gave her this is a historic moment for women speech, and Donald Trump became a champion of LGBTQ rights. I so wish June were here to hear me say that, but she is not. So the three of us will discuss. Um, Let's start with Hillary's speech. Thanks to you, we've reached a milestone. The first time, the first time in our nation's history that a woman will be a major party's nominee. Not about one person. It belongs to generations of women and men who struggled and sacrificed and made this moment possible. In our country, it started right here in New York, a place called Seneca Falls in 1848. Jessica, I'm, since you've already thrown away your feminist card in this episode, I'm going to put I'm just kidding. You're such a good feminist. You're such a good feminist. Um, it's like bunnies, bunnies, puppies. <laughs> um, what you did, you had a kind of underwhelmed reaction to Hillary's speech, which I think is common, even though you got, you know, punished on Twitter for it. It is common. <laughs> I promise you that it's common. You were just brave enough to admit it. So can you let's talk about the speech a little bit. Let, let's actually before I get to your reaction. So so she, so she gave a st- speech, which was basically, look, this is the first time a woman will be a major nominee. She talked about the history of feminism. Seneca Falls, she basically connected herself to a long feminist movement in America. So that's, you know, an expected speech that she would give. So why didn't it move you to tears? I am a person who can tear up at a dog food commercial. So I was a little confused that I did not get misty during her speech, uh, where she acknowledged herself as the first female uh, nominee of a major uh, party for president. I, I, I don't know exactly what it was because it was an excellent speech. There was a kind of calm and serenity about her, a kind of deep breathtaking that I found very appealing that she doesn't um, often achieve in, in her speeches. The presentation of the speech was, was as, as moving or, you know, not as the, as the speech itself. Um, when she spoke about uh, her daughter and her granddaughter, when she spoke about her mother and the the terrible struggle, struggles that her mother had, and I, I had no idea that her mother's birth coincided with the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment, like that that she definitely buried that lead. That's that's an amazing uh, uh, coincidence. And you, do you just not like that kind of you know that sort of like big historical statement just doesn't do much for you, or is it Hillary baggage that you're bringing to that? I I don't know. And it it was alienating because my entire Twitter feed and and Facebook feed was lit up with people, with women who were so moved and so excited and exhilarated um, by this moment. Um, And as you alluded to, Hannah, Hannah, I've never lost as many Twitter followers at once as when I tweeted that I just couldn't get excited about it, was, which was a crappy thing to do. Like, don't rain on people's parades and say, oh, what's the big deal? I don't know. I mean, that seems like lots of people react that way to Hillary. There's no way that you're the only one. Every female Bernie Sanders supporter, I mean, it's not like it's absent in the culture of people saying that Hillary says things that are obligatory and that she's part of the establishment. I mean, that's like a cliche about Hillary. Mm. So I don't see why you should pay such a high price unless I mean, it has to do with who your Twitter followers are. Some of it, well, some of it I think is just I don't trust her on foreign policy. I 
anyone who voted for the Iraq war just constantly has a ding next to their name for me. And maybe there should be a statute of limitations on that, but I don't think so. Um, so there's there's that. But I, I think it's that I've been watching this woman get pilloried and slandered and knocked around for my entire adulthood and the tail end of my childhood. And I just don't have the heart for it anymore. I know she has the heart for it. I know she's made of industrial strength stuff and she can take it and she wants to take it, but I don't want to watch her take it anymore. I, I, mm-hmm. I will. I'll vote for her. I've already voted for her in the New York primary. I will go to a swing state to canvas for her if it's needed. But that intoxicating feeling of being buoyed along on the waves of history that we had with Obama is just totally absent. And that's okay. Oh, my God, that's interesting. That's a really, really interesting thing. So it's it's just that you can't fool yourself into that moment because there's too much reality. It's like writing a birth plan for your second birth. Do that once because you're only that stupid once. And so the second time you're like, I know what this is going to be like. So I'm not going to write one of those like dreamy, you know, I don't I want get to a go gluten free birth, what? whatever. Exactly. You told me exactly. I could go in a tub. I'm laughing like I understand this. But I <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't like get all dreamy eyed and right. we're making history here because there's so much reality attached to her. I thought about this a lot because I really appreciated the speech. I think I remember when Barack Obama became president. I wish he had talked more about being the first black president and, of course, realized that he couldn't because everyone's a racist dick. But I think with Hillary, I've felt that she's been inevitable for so long, almost throughout the entire primary and years before that, that I felt like I already maybe had that moment or that that moment was spread across the past year or two. You know, that's not necessarily because she's uninspiring, though I do think she's nothing like the public speaker that Obama was, which is not a mark against her. But it's a testament to the slog that she's been through, the hard work that she's put in, the fact that there was not really another candidate that people could envision for the Democratic nominee. I think I've already gotten used to the idea that we'll probably have the first female president, Knockwood. And I saw a couple of tweets that hit me hard, but her actual speech, I think, was sort of just not even a cherry on top, like an extra sprinkle of nuts on a Sunday that we've been eating for a long time. Mm, Sunday. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I think I like the nuts because it's not like it doesn't give her an extra sweetness. It's just like the hardworking nut at the top of the Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what I responded to in that speech? It was not actually something, you know, move you to tears. This is what I've been responding to with Hillary in general. Sinking into the anti-Trump, not the anti-Trump in the kind of confident way she 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 talks about Trump, although that's part of it too. But like it, like she has found an identity in the counter identity, which is this serene. You know, it's going to turn into the cliche of like 
building bridges rather than building walls or, you know, the bridge metaphor yet again. But um, but 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 she's sinking into this kind of figure of authority and wisdom and serenity and bring people together and kind of our history is great. You know, it's not like America's not falling apart. America's wonderful. And there's a kind of coherent narrative that's emerging that actually doesn't have that much to do with her being a woman. For me, um, it, it has to do with her being a, a figure of wisdom and authority, which actually takes advantage of the things that you don't like, Jessica, which is that she's been around the block. Um, she's dealt with a lot of things. So I feel like her outlines are being are getting clearer for me. I mean, this is Trump's fault, you know, this is like her luck to have Trump as a as an opponent, but it's working for me. Like I can see Hillary clearly in a way I haven't been. Like I think of her as so reactive and positiony, but suddenly I can see who she is and 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 like why she would be good. That's very eloquent. I like that. I think she should go full Angela Merkel. Just yes. calm, <laughs> firm, steady as a rock, a kind of undemonstrative mom thing. Where, yeah. Like she doesn't, you know, she's not effusive and she's not, but you know she loves you to the depths of your being and will fight for you. I think Aww. that's where she's kind <laughs> of go- Well, no, I Well, that's why I like this speech. Like it <laughs> right. wasn't super emotional. It wasn't that rousing. She didn't have that, you know, close up with the tear. It's just like here's how it is. Yep. The birthday, it coincided. It had a little like this is fate to it, but it was just, you know, I'm delivering history to you. It was it was kind of great. She'll have to like do something. I mean, her hair will have to just go slowly unattended if she's... Remember when she was Secretary of State and she let her hair kind of grow out? I love that. And she put it in the scrunchie sometimes and she just like (laughs) wouldn't fucking bother? That is my favorite Hillary Clinton. Um, well, that's what we need for your yeah. whole Angela Merkel look. (laughs) Right. Like somewhere in between. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. well, we're not going to spend too much time on Donald Trump, but we're just going to unpack a little bit like how he managed, how he did the kind of this was in his response to the Orlando shooting, um, the dark moment in America's history. And he kind of managed to marry the anti-Muslim to the pro-gay. Anyone want to describe, like, explain exactly the move he made and how? And he actually used the words LGBTQ. Like, it was such a, it was such an odd moment of him trying to claim the kind of. It was there actually was a line like we're too PC, but then he just made like a PC turn, which I've never heard him do. So, so how did that all work? Right after uh, the Orlando shooting, my friends and I got together to talk about it and sort of process what had happened. And this was almost before anyone had said anything about it or before any of us had run the news about it. We already knew that this would be the perfect occasion for right-wingers and especially those running for office to try to pit LGBTQ people against Muslims. And Donald Trump has apparently succeeded in doing that with some people, but anything he says is not credible. And so I think maybe some LGBTQ people can fool themselves into thinking that he is pro-gay because any remarks that he's previously made when trying to get the nomination about how, you know, he doesn't agree with all the advances that gay people have made, blah, 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 it seemed just as 
uncredible as anything else that he's said. Well, it's let's, frustrating. Let's back up for a second and let's just lay out what the rhetorical move was in which Donald Trump became the great friend of women, children, and the LGBTQ community that we've always known him to be. So in his speech, he drew a line in the sand between on the one side, Muslim immigrants to the U.S., which, of course, he wants to ban. And on the other side, women, children, and LGBTQ communities. He sails right over the fact that there are, in fact, in existence today, Muslim <laughs> women, Muslim children, and Muslim gays and lesbians. Let's just, like, throw that aside. And he creates this stark binary. And I'm sure to his followers it achieves a stunning moral clarity. And he ascribes it to Hillary Clinton. She sa- he, he says that Hillary Clinton is trying to have it both ways. She's supportive of Muslim immigrants, but she also says she's supportive of women and children and LGBTQ people. And that's hypocrisy. It's, ca- it's pretty amazing. I mean, as a rhetorical backflip, it is kind of amazing as, as well as evil and incoherent. Um, but couldn't you say the exact same thing about Christians? I mean, if you're just going to make the broad assumption that every Muslim is anti-gay— Like, I can easily make the broad assumption that every Christian, you know, and he spends a lot of time among evangelicals, is anti-gay. So so Mm -hmm. by that turn, you can't be pro-Christian because he says, I refuse to allow America to become a place where gay people, comma, Christian people and Jewish people (laughs) are, (laughs) are the targets of persecution and intimidation by radical Islamic preachers of hate and violence. It's really an odd move. Like, what was he going for? Like, is he, does he think he's going to get the LGBTQ vote, like in droves? It was such an odd statement. I have no idea what the end game is here. I don't get the sense that the average Trump voter gets exercised about women's rights or LGBTQ people being mistreated. I mean, every indication from his rallies is exactly the opposite. But I also don't think Trump ever has an end game. It's just whatever is in his mind at the moment. Even though now he's reading off a teleprompter, which somehow intensifies the terror of everything he says. <laughs> like who's actually <laughs> writing it you know, as right. opposed to just coming spontaneously out. It seems almost worse. But it does seem, you know, if if you think of him as like a Reddit guy, I don't know. What is his position on, like, what is his genuine feeling about gay rights? Do, I that, think he doesn't care. Right. I he think, doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, he is selfish. I think he cares about himself. I think he probably doesn't much care what other people do, especially in the bedroom. I think he did an okay job of pretending like he cared in the fight for the nomination. But yeah, you're right. It it does seem weird that he would do that considering that there are very few people as a percentage of the LGBTQ population who would probably switch over and vote for him because of some speech. Although I do think that there are plenty of people out there who will be scared by this, who will for their own mental clarity, try to attribute it to Islam instead of homo and transphobia. He's also yeah. seeing he's he's also seeing an opening to attack Hillary Clinton on you know whenever he rants about Sharia law and how Muslim immigrants want to come and impose Sharia law on America and you know how that would be bad for LGBTQ people but also you know very very bad for women. I mean, if he's looking for any opening, um, or that's the move. Hillary. Like Hillary loves Muslims. Muslims are going to impose Sharia yeah, law, uh, and Sharia law is bad for, for women. The, for, gay, for women Which and gays. Which is hilarious yeah. because. Whatever the Christian version of Sharia law is, we're already, you know, plenty of states are already under there. that is administration. There? <laughs> and even in state houses and courts of law, people use the Christian faith to justify policies that 
mess with women's lives, LGBTQ people's lives. And uh, obviously Trump doesn't have a problem with that. I mean, one last thing about this thing that struck me is like the language he used, because you said teleprompter, if he just spoken off the cuff, it was that he was using the correct language in every, you know, LGBTQ, sexual orientation, gay and lesbian, like something about it struck me as so practiced, you know? It just didn't sound right coming from his mouth, the whole thing. It almost sends a chill down my spine when somebody like him says LGBTQ (laughs) correctly. I would almost rather than mess it up because it's like, oh, you've practiced that so many times in the mirror. And you don't, you're not friends with any person who actually identifies with those letters, but it's like, oh, you got to say it right. It took me like three shows to get it right. Our listeners were so annoyed because I'd say like June Thomas, who, you know, editor of LGBTQ, it was like, I get it wrong and it was really embarrassing. Anyway, I'm good now. I'm good. Um, All right. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about in this election from both Trump and Hillary, and we look forward to that. Okay. So now let's move on to recommendations. But before we do that, let's hear from our final sponsor. This Double X Gab Fest is also brought to you by Blue Apron. I've tried Blue Apron. I've cooked things that I didn't know I could cook. It makes things very easy for somebody who is writing late into the night and needs to take just a couple minutes off to cook a delicious meal. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes— Blue Apron is bringing you the best. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Check out this week's menu and get your two meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash double X. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash double X. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, recommendations. Jessica, why don't you go first? I want to recommend Rivka Galchin's book, Little Labors, which is a slender and delightful little tome. It's a compendium of vignettes, short essays, and miscellany largely about early motherhood. I really love how the author renders the intimacy and also the strangeness of spending lots of time with a charming and reckless little person. And I've never really read anything like it. It's called Little Labors. Oh, that's been on my list. Um, it sound, got a lot of great reviews and seemed great. Yeah, it's super short. I read it in one evening. Okay, my turn. I have two recommendations this week. One is Jessica's book, Break in Case of Emergency, which I happen to have my hands on an early copy. I'm very lucky. It is hilarious and wise and moving, and it's kind of a little too close to home for people who <laughs> who think and work in feminist circles. Um, so, um, but it's just a wonderful novel. It's out in early July, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Congratulations, Jessica. Thank you, Hannah. Sure. It is a really, really funny, great book. I just really enjoyed reading it. I did not read it in one night. I'm sorry to say I read it in three nights, but I think that's okay. <laughs> I think that doesn't make it like a third as riveting. It took me three nights. Three times as riveting. Three times as riveting. Um, there's, there's another thing I want to bring up. Um, my favorite writer in all of newspaperdom is Anne Hull. She's a Washington Post writer, and she has been writing about towns where painkillers are just everywhere and how hard it is to stay clean. 
Women. And this weekend, she wrote one called The Lonely Road of Staying Clean about a woman named Jessica Kilpatrick. And it's basically about the toll that painkillers are taking on women. They're separated from their children. There are really no men around in this world. And she just basically closely follows Jessica Kilpatrick as she tries to get to work and tries to stay off drugs. And it's really a just very sad and moving portrait of what America is like in certain places right now. Okay, Christina. I am recommending Tegan and Sarah's new album, Love You to Death. Uh, It came out just before Pride Weekend in D.C. It got me in the mood, and especially now in the wake of so much tragedy and pain in LGBTQ circles, I've found a lot of hope in listening to gay dance music. It'll put a smile on your face. I love that. That is a great recommendation. Yeah, me too. That's a great recommendation. It won't disappoint. Yeah, we should have that as our outro music. Well, thank you to our producer, Ann Hepperman, to the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply, and our intern is Daniel Schrader. The Double X Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. To find out more about the show, go to our show page, slate.com slash XX. Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Double X Gap Fest, to recommend topics for us and generally talk about the show Email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com and subscribe on iTunes so more people can find out about the show. For Christina and Jessica, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Never been on time to leave much room for anyone to speak.